I don't know about you, I, for the next three sessions, I really want to take a thing called Great Expectations <clears throat> and just unpack it a little. <clears throat> um, I don't know, again, I don't know about you, I, I, I remember, I, there's bits of me that I can be a bit of a bar humbug at Christmas, <laughs> all right, um, and yet, I've got to be honest, um, at the same time, I just do... I do like it, really, you know. It's a time where we get together with our kids. It's the only day of the year, you know, Christmas Day, where our whole family sits down in one place at one time and we share time together. And that is precious to me. I'm one of those people, though, that I, 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 I've always... I, I haven't had presents. We don't really do presents, me and Liz, in that sense, you know. Um, or I always tell her that I sh we don't need to do presents, and then I usually buy her one, and she gets mad at me because then she hasn't got me one. Um, but I always remember growing up, and I used to start practicing for Christmas morning on the 1st of December because we used to have uh, family come and stay and I got relegated to the study and I used to sleep on one of those put you up campers you know those ones where you sort of pull the legs out and it and it all just drops back and it just lies there and I used to take in I used to find a pair of scissors which I was never allowed and I'd hide them in the office and I used to even take paper in with me and I'd practice waking up early and cutting the Christmas paper without making a noise. And you might think this is crazy, but I actually used to do that, you know? And so on Christmas morning, I would be awake at 2 a.m. And what I would be doing is I would already be emptying the bag at the end of my bed and cutting it open unbeknown to my parents well I, I they've never told me that they knew anyway so um but I, I I I used to get really excited my expectation would start growing from the day that because my parents bless their hearts they played the game you know they got me right in a list only so they knew what to get me and then they got me what they wanted anyway um I always remember one year I put on my list I would like a Johnny Seven. Anybody remember the Johnny Seven? Yeah? It's only you and me, Andrew. Oh, no, three of us. The Johnny Seven was this multiple gun that shot hand grenades and all sorts of things all over the place. And the, the thing that used to fire the rifle, you pull out, and it used to be a pistol, right? And it had um, legs on the front of it. I wanted this Johnny Seven. It was the best thing that I could have ever seen on a tv advert and i asked for it and i i was sure i was going to get it i was sure i was going to get it and guess what i didn't get it no i got to the day and i knew i hadn't got it there wasn't a box big enough <laughs> and i was so disappointed everything after that seemed a little bit off anyway great expectations I had great expectations. And I'm sure here this morning, some of you have got great expectations. But we should always be living in the sense of great expectations. Because whereas when I was asking for things from my parents, I couldn't be sure whether I'd get them or not. The truth is that if you ask someone who you know is going to get you what you ask for, 
Your expectation is it not only is it guaranteed, but it is increased. And it becomes super exciting. All right, super exciting. So, this morning I want to share with you about great expectations. Because God is full of great expectations. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I want to share with you from the life of Abraham. And it's about the promise. So, I know that Christmas isn't necessarily, as we celebrate it in December, isn't necessarily when Jesus was born. All right? But I want to tell you, the birth of Jesus had been determined even before the foundation of the world. If the crucifixion itself had been determined before the foundation of the world, then so had Christ's birth. And there was nothing that could take God by surprise. And throughout Scripture, we're met again and again and again, not only with people who have expectation of a promise But we also, as I hope we will see this morning, we will have promises that have been met. And therefore, the promise of what we wait for is guaranteed. So we're people who live in promises fulfilled, and we are also people who live in promises still waited for, but having been established already. So here I would have read from Genesis 11 at the end of 11 and if I was reading it I'd have to go through to at least chapter 21. So I thought that was a bit of a long reading so I'm going to praise it for you if I can. So I've written here the account of Abram or Abraham's life and his interaction with God is an account of expectation, disappointment and promise. Understand that. Expectation, but disappointment and promise. Right at the end of chapter 11, you hear, you you get this picture of um, Terah, which who was Abram's father. He's lost his son, Haran. And he decides to leave where he is and make his way to Canaan. Very interesting that it's Canaan to which he was heading. But it makes this little statement just before the end of chapter 11. And it says this, But when Terah and the family got to Haran, they settled there. Now I want to suggest something to you right at the outset this morning. That Terah, the father of Abraham, he is suffering because he has seen his son Haran die and he was present when his son died. And therefore, he was in a place possibly of grief and disappointment. No parent ever wants to see a child of theirs go before them. It doesn't seem right somehow. You will hear that said whenever you hear people talk about losing a child. It doesn't seem right somehow that the child goes first. And so they get to Haran and it's almost like terror gives up. And it could have been grief, it could have just been the fact that it's already stated just a few verses earlier than this that Sarai was barren and couldn't have children. So 
There was no more um, lineage expected at all. And so Terah seems to me to give up. But then Terah passes. And we hear then Abram asked by God to leave where he was, the place of his um, family, and to move on. We often say that um, he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans, but they left there to come to um, Haran. And so when uh, Abraham finally leaves, he leaves from Haran, and he's going to a place where God will show him Anyway, off they go, and they do this travel, and they come through Canaan. And during that time, you know, he he said, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to a land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Uh, uh, bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all your families of the earth in all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so Abram was obedient and off he went and he went to Canaan it says he passed through the land and God again reiterates his promise to him to your offspring I will give this land now his wife is barren she cannot bear children they will have known that because they will have tried to have children they will have known that she can't and here are promises coming from the Lord to Abram telling him that he's going to be a great nation well how is that going to happen if he can't start having a family and children then have children and children have children and so on how is that ever going to be And then when he gets into the land and he's passing to and fro, he's told again, your offspring, to your offspring I will give this land. Now notice something. When he receives these things, Abram does not question at all. It's later on he asks God a question. Abram's life shows how he was prepared to trust God. Even at the point he takes Lot with him. And Lot, you might remember in the story, they get to a place, they're herdsmen, they're so rich, they've got so many animals that they can't stay together. They have to part company. And they come to this place and Abram says to Lot, listen, I tell you what, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Now me, being the oldest, because Abram was older than Lot, I would have said, I'm going here, you go that way. But Abram was prepared to trust God, and because he was prepared to trust God, God, after Lot had chosen the best-looking land, he says to Abram, look to the north, to the east, to the south, and to the west. I don't know which is which, so don't matter. I know north, south, east, and west, wherever it is. All right? All, as far as your eye can see, will be yours. So he's already told him, basically, that he's going to even get the lush stuff in the end. But Abram is demonstrating trusting God. But as I said, if I'd been in his sandals, I just would not have done that. And then there's the encounter where 
Abram rescues Lot, he meets Melchizedek and he receives a word from the Lord through a vision. And Abram is told that God is his shield, his protection, and that your reward will be very great. And it is at this point in Abram's life that disappointment, deep-seated disappointment and doubt is manifest. Because Abram said, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And so what you've got is you've had this promise given. Time is passing. Things are happening. And it appears that despite the promise that was there, that it isn't coming about. And poor old Abram, when he hears the Lord say to him, I'm going to reward you greatly, there was only one thing on his mind. He wanted a child of his own to be his heir. That is what he wanted and it wasn't there. It's almost like he's saying to God, well, what can you give me? You won't give me the very thing I want. So anything else, this is me reading into the text. But I can imagine him, anything else just does not, you know, it pales into insignificance no matter how great it is. Because without an heir, it just isn't complete. I think there is immense pain demonstrated by Abram. I don't think Abram is angry with God. He doesn't strike me as angry, but he is in pain. And God sees that. He sees that. Hold on. Yeah. Anyway. Eliezer of Damascus. Oh, that's where I'm looking for the other bit of the verse. Um, God then replies, This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He reaffirms the promise. And then, to blow Abraham's mind, he takes him outside. It must have been in the evening because he takes him outside and he tells him to look up at the stars. And he says, if you can number the stars, that's how many your offspring will be. That must have blown his mind because we know the stars are unnumberable. There is no way, you know, even if you got to a billion or so, then you would lose your place and you'd have to start again, right? But it does say this about Abram, and he believed the Lord and he counted, that's the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. I think that Abram had been questioning the previous promise. He might not have done it out loud to the Lord, but he was questioning this thing. Time was marching on. He was getting older by the day, and it wasn't happening. So what will happen? So he believes, 
It's credited to him as righteousness. What can I learn from that statement? It's okay to be honest with God. So many of us sometimes, and don't get me wrong when I say this, because you may think that this sounds irreverent, but it's not meant that way. Sometimes we think that God is so holy, so awesome, so out there, so big, so mighty, so full of glory, that it's not all right for us to say where we're at. In my life, I've learned that being honest with God is imperative. I might have to come back to the place where having wailed and cried out to God on issues to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I seem to have moved no further forward. But there is something about us being able to pour out our heart before God, which is so beautiful. And I would encourage you, don't, and I I can't think of another way of putting this, don't have such a high view of God that you end up in a place where you are unable to pray your heart and how you feel. Anyway, he comes to this place. And after that, God then seals what he has said in a covenant. Now, a covenant is a very, very holy thing. He seals it in a covenant. He seals everything with Abram in a covenant. He asks Abram in, I think it's chapter 15, to bring um, uh, a heifer and some other animals and he cuts them in in two and he, he lays them down either side. Now when two parties were making a covenant together, they were both responsible for the fulfillment of that covenant. And the way they in which they did that was they would walk between the severed animals one would walk one way and he was the person who would walk one way would be saying, if I don't maintain this, if I don't hold to this, then may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. Let me be cut asunder like these animals and split apart. And then the other party in the agreement would do exactly the same and walk the other way through the animals. And he, that person would be saying exactly the same thing. If I fail to keep this covenant, then let me be cut asunder like these animals and basically left. This is a strange covenant. Not strange in um, ungodly, but there is only one party in this covenant and that's God. It is God who walks between the animals and burns them with fire. Abram is never asked to walk through them. In fact, it says Abram fell into a deep sleep and God did the walking between the animals. And in doing that, God only held himself accountable for his promise. Now, there is an important truth for us to remember here because when it comes to salvation and other things in our lives where we have received promises from God, God holds himself accountable for that on salvation 
The fact that he will come again and he will gather to himself those who have come to him and are his and are now adopted into his family and are his children. God holds himself accountable for the delivery of that. And I want you to understand this is really important because so often we read some of the promises of God in Scripture and there are some which have conditions, but some of those promises God holds himself to. And we need to recognize that. So the provision of Jesus was one of those things where God held himself accountable to because Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. And therefore God held himself accountable for bringing Jesus. For at the full, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, the fullness of time, not too early, not too late, in the fullness of time. When God had determined before the foundation of the world, he had already determined the time of Jesus' coming and his promises were there. Abraham shows us though sometimes how we have to live in between a promise fulfilled and a promise received and we need to understand that. 25 years after he leaves Haran, Abram's name is changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of a multitude. 25 years after the original leaving and the original promise, he still is childless. He's had these encounters but he is still childless. He was 75 when he started. He is now 99 going on 100 and not wanting to be coarse in any way, but to have a child, it wasn't an immaculate conception, so he must have been trying. And his age is getting on and on, and Sarah now is 90 years of age. 90 years of age, and God comes to him again. And it actually says this. Abraham's response was to fall on the floor laughing. I mean, can you imagine that? God comes and reminds you, and all you can do is fall on the ground laughing. He said to himself, how is this going to be possible Because I'm a hundred and Sarah's ninety. How's this going to be possible? And Abraham immediately does something so foolish. And how guilty can we be of doing the same? You might remember a bit of the story I've left out is that at one point, Sarah, or Sarai as she was then, having had the promise of a child, after about 10 years, decides to give to Abram her slave, Hagar. And he lies with Hagar and she becomes pregnant and then the trouble starts, all right? 10 years after they started waiting for this child of promise, they took things back into their own hands. And they tried to produce it their way. And how many times, and I talk about the church in general here, 
How many times has the church done that in general? God says he's going to do something and then we try and manufacture it in order to bring it about when it is to God and up to God in order when those things happen. I cannot make someone be convicted of sin. It wouldn't matter how good I was with words. It is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that changes people's lives, not the many words that I might speak. But here in this passage, what happens is this. 25 years on, Abraham has fallen down laughing, saying, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He wants to offer up what he's already tried to produce of his own, to put to God himself, so that, so that, God would bless the fruit of his Life, if you want. Because he was, I think he was just about losing it at this point. He could no longer see at all how God's promise was ever going to come to be. And then God reminds him again. Sarah laughs because what she saw, just like Abraham had seen, She sees it as an impossibility. In in chapter 18, verse 14, it says this, Is anything, this is God speaking, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah will have a son. (coughs) Excuse me. And lo and behold... When we get to chapter 21, the very promise of God is born, Isaac. And you read of it in chapter 21, 1 to 7. And she alludes to Isaac's name, meaning laughter, because people will laugh because of their age and the impossibility of what seems it cannot be done. And yet God did it anyway. It's extremely important for us to realize that the one who has promised will fulfill. The one who has promised will fulfill, as he has said that he would do. And that's what he did. I read from Galatians, or quoted from Galatians 4 uh, just a bit earlier. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just look at this for a moment, though. This is the point I want to make. In Genesis 3.15, right at the beginning of, of the word of God, it says these words in Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So right from the beginning, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he gave an indication that a saviour would come and that that saviour would 
have victory over what Satan had done. And that was right back at the beginning. And so, by the time Jesus arrives 2,000 years ago, or just over 2,000 years ago, right? The reality is, that promise had been going far beyond that. Genesis 12.3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. We know that the blessing that was given to Abraham, the blessing that he was going to bring was in his line there would be Jesus. And through Jesus all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And we haven't even got out of Genesis yet. So Jesus is coming is a fulfilment of Genesis 3.15. It's a fulfilment of Genesis 12.30 at 3. It's a fulfilment of Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. and We'll call him Emmanuel. That was written 700 years before Christ came. 700 years. And it was fulfilled in Jesus and through Mary being willing to carry the Son of God in her womb. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, of old, from ancient times. Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. That prophecy was 800 years before Christ. Hosea 11.1 When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, Hosea writes, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, before Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to go into a far country before they could return again. The reality is, the promise of God was fulfilled. It matters not what the timeline is. I think it's in Hebrews, actually. It says about Abraham, he looked for a city whose architect and maker was God. He never saw it. He never, ever took hold of it. But it didn't stop him living in the promise of it. And today, he lives in it. You can't talk about his birth without his death. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do those words sound similar to you, to words that were uttered by Jesus on the cross? Psalm 22 was written years and years before. Am I turning this page over? I've printed double-sided and I always get lost on double-sided notes. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let them deliver him. What was cried out as Jesus hung on a cross? If you're the Son of God, call out and he will save you. Psalm 22, 16 to 18. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That psalm was written 1,000 years before Jesus hung on a cross. 
the promise, the statement was there. And I could go on. I could mention Isaiah 53, we read from this morning. Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53, 9. They were all fulfilled. All fulfilled. Every last one of them. So today, we live in a promise fulfilled. We have come to Jesus. We have surrendered our lives to Christ. We are his children, sons and daughters of the living God. Therefore, we, he has given us the right to call ourselves the children of God. Therefore, we are living in the promise fulfilled. And yet there is a promise to come that one day we will be with him or he will return and take us home. We sang it this morning. We, he will return and take us home. So we're living in the promise that has already been fulfilled and we're living in the promise which is still yet to come. And so the day we came to Christ, we now live in that middle period. And the Word of God tells us to be careful, not to lose focus, not to lose sight of the fact that he is coming again, because in doing so, we can wander off the path. Jeremiah 29 and Ephesians 2 tells us God has plans and purposes to be fulfilled, both for Israel and those who love him. Hebrews 10.23 reminds us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 2 Corinthians 1.20 God's promises are yes and amen. For all the promises of God, this is the verse, they are yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen. Amen means so be it. For his glory, not ours. So what do we need to remind ourselves this, at this time of year when consumerism overtakes people and even though we're in an economic downturn it is amazing I went for just a, a, a short walk on uh, yesterday up to street and the place was rammed absolutely rammed you would not think there was any economic downturn whatsoever you couldn't get in the car park it was so rammed people were just there you know so what do we need to remind ourselves? First and foremost, the trustworthiness of God in our lives. God is always trustworthy even when it seems impossible. You may have let go of promises God has made to you as individuals, as couples, as a church, we can let go of the promises because it's too painful for us to think about them. But even when it begins to seem impossible for us, it is still possible to him. 
Second, let us be thankful for our salvation that was determined before the foundation of the world and brought about through the death of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And at this Christmas, let us remember to give praise, not just thanks for the gifts that we receive amongst the family, but let us praise God for the wonderful gift of his love that he gave us in Jesus. Thirdly, let us recount the promises God has given us as individuals and stir up again in our lives our faith to believe what he has said again because nothing is impossible. And my last thing is everything we do must be done to bring him glory and honour. Therefore, I think Christmas is a great time to rededicate our lives to him with the goal of bringing him glory and honour as we go forward. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just so grateful for your promises. I am so grateful for your faithfulness that when you speak your promises, Lord, in your heart, in your mind, in your purpose, they are yes and amen. Father God, where I need to respond in order to see your promises fulfilled, Lord, help us all to respond to you appropriately. Lord, help us to keep believing in the promise of eternity as we walk through life, Lord. We are only aliens and strangers on our way through to a greater home. And so, Father, I just ask that, Lord, that you will make your promises real to us, that you will remind us of your faithfulness in fulfilling what you say. Because, Lord, you are no man's debtor. You have never let us down. Even when we've let you down, you've never let us down. And for that we give you thanks. Amen. Amen.